Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This thing uh, is so fun to read. And, uh, Good. I'm glad. I, uh, I have, uh, of the sort of siloed genre of uh, literary science nonfiction, uh, uh, I loved how, how, how much you used verbs and how, and how well you, you staged things as an unfolding story. I had a, a favorite, uh, my favorite opening to one of your chapters is, see, it's, and I remember it was chapter eight, and it is, uh, once upon a time, back in the Denovian period, there was a pair of bones inside an armored fish in the back of the head, one on each side. The fish paid them no mind. The fish was, after all, busy swishing sand into the dead-eyed stare of a giant sea scorpion, scorpion that was chasing it. I love it. Like, like I, uh, openings like that, I'm like, yeah, science, baby. Thank so, you. Thank <laughs> you. That's great. Um, well, I had a lot of fun writing it. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 220. Um, uh, my name is Henry G, uh, and uh, I am a senior editor of the science journal Nature. Uh, this is the international science journal where scientists send all their best work, but I should say other science magazines are available. Um, and <laughs> I've been. Um, Yes, that is the voice of Henry Ernest G., the paleontologist, evolutionary biologist, and senior editor of the scientific journal Nature, the famed scientific journal, the Mount Olympus of science journalism. And I was very honored to get a chance to just sit down and hang out with one of the absolute titans of science communication, Mr. Henry G., He's also a blues musician and a tokenist. That's uh, a person who's really into uh, Lord of the Rings and the surrounding fiction. He was the editor of Malorn, the journal of the Tolkien Society. And he has written some science fiction books of his own. Not saying that Tolkien is science fiction. I'm saying he has written some science fiction books as well as being a tokenist. And those books are a trilogy called The Sigil. He's on this episode of the You're Not So Smart podcast, kind of a divergence from what we usually do here. Uh, we're going to talk about just straight up science. It's not psychology. It's not neuroscience. It's not political science. Because his new book is titled A Very Short History of Life on Earth, 4.6 Billion Years in 12 Chapters. 
She's the author of several other fantastic books like Before the Backbone, Views on the Origin of Vertebrates, In Search of Deep Time, Beyond the Fossil Record to a New History of Life, The Field Guide to Dinosaurs, The Essential Handbook for Travelers in the Mesozoic, Jacob's Ladder, The History of the Human Genome, and The Accidental Species, Misunderstandings of Human Evolution, and he also wrote a book about the science of Lord of the Rings. In his most recent book, he writes about how, despite all odds, life on Earth has managed to flourish. It starts with the formation of the planet, and then our best guesses on how life formed and evolution from legs to ears to faces, from feathers to teeth, and so on, including a long section about the anus, which we'll talk about at the, well, tail end of this episode. And in the book, he does all that before he goes to primates, and then eventually us. Now, this interview barely stayed on topic. This is a a very lively human being uh, who likes to play more than work, and I edited out the 20 minutes we spent talking about Dune and Ringworld and Hyperion and other science fiction classics. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. I know you will. I did. It was great. And uh, please forgive his audio. We were over Zoom, and sometimes Zoom just doesn't deliver. So, uh, without any more in- introduction, that was a lot of introduction. Here he is, Henry G., Titan of science communication, and author of a very short history of life on Earth. I've been, uh, I was hired. In 1987, uh, as a news reporter on a three-month contract, it's the longest three-month contract anyone's ever had, and I'm still there, but mostly I supervise the publication of, I select and supervise the publications in evolutionary biology, in other words, all the good stuff, mm-hmm. and, archaeolo- mm-hmm. and archaeology and stuff like that, and, um, and I, write, I write books and play music and other stuff. Yeah, you do. You do all sorts of yeah. stuff. You are an autodidact dilettante, my favorite kind of dilettante. Uh, the <laughs> the uh, you have an immense uh, uh, CV, or as they say in my part of the world, your bona fides are quite impressive. So um, you are, uh, and you write incredibly well, and you're a great uh, curator uh, of science communication and i just had a interview i just had a meeting just before this with the world science congress of uh, the, right. of commu- they're having a conference and i get to for the first time mm-hmm. i finally get to be part of that world i've always wanted wow. to be part of it so uh, and i mentioned that um I, I was about to talk to someone at nature and they were like ah because these are all people <laughs> these are the people who are behind nova and pbs and things like that um, well you see um i'm i'm actually when they want to show that the people who run nature are actually human beings they wheel me out which is <laughs> kind of first first approximation um, that's a good view of a human being the, uh, the, uh, i uh, um, i love it and, and uh, i nature has in my mind so much prestige and like even when i'm when i'm doing my own writing i if i mention this was published in Nature. I can just feel the 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 reader going, "Okay, well then I believe this. This is good." Uh, so, well, that's that's the illusion we like to create. We don't want to kind of sh- shatter that. So that, I'm glad. Good. I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm glad that feeling is out there in the world. <laughs> good. It is. It is for me. It has been my whole my whole life. As a kid, we were. My dad made sure that I had, uh, as a sci-fi nerd himself, he had. Uh, he, we had a subscription to Discover 
magazine mm-hmm. and Omni magazine. Uh, and I remember the first thing that excited me about science, and probably the thing that led me to science journalism eventually, was um, they had this sort of, uh, at the back of Discover, they would have this uh, cartoon panel, almost a comic book type thing to as a quick explainer at the end of each mm-hmm. magazine. I don't know how long they did it, but one was about uh, the peacock and why would the peacock have this thing that seems to make it more more difficult to survive than mm-hmm. not. And it was my first introduction to anything in the, in the world of uh, evolutionary biology at all. And it excited me to no end. I would show it to people and be like, you think about it, it's crazy, right? Why would, if you ever mm-hmm. ask why a peacock has feathers like that, it's weird. Huh? And it was great. So any way you get in there is good, is good. But I feel like your final destination yeah. is going to be nature if you if you become a hardcore super science person. So I don't know. I just would appreciate your work. I feel very honored. Well, to thank, have you you. thank you. Thank you. I mean, I'm now part of the, I'm now part of the furniture now. I'm just the, the old grandpa. They sit in the corner and throw things out. Uh, uh, to wake me up and ask me something that sounds like a wonderful dream i would like to one day be that as well sir it it's it's the world's best job david absolutely is and no one else would have me so so that's why i stopped now. <laughs> how did you get interested in this as a profession as a career well the thing is i always wanted to write i was always scribbling something and you know what it's like when you're a writer it's a compulsion you you just can't stop and um uh but i was interested in in, in zoology and uh, di- dinosaurs, you know, all kids, all small kids know the names of uh, at least 10 dinosaurs mm-hmm. before they're toilet trained. Um, and um, uh, some some of us kids never grow out of it, the dinosaurs, that is, not the toilet training. And, um, <laughs> and I was introduced at an early age to, to museums, uh, especially the the natural history museum mm. in london mm-hmm. which is now a, a big crowded place but when i was there in the mid 60s it was very fusty and uh and i had the place to myself it was just like heaven but i always ended up going to the most obscure bits and looking at the bits where things began so i was always in the fossil fish gallery <laughs> which had no one else in it uh, and i was always at the end with the earliest fossil fish trying to work out how they came from something else so I was always interested in roots and beginnings. So I always wanted to be a, a paleontologist. And, and you know, um, I went, I did my first degree and I went to university in Cambridge and I worked on Ice Age cows, which are not really fish at all. But I suppose you could, you could say they were kind of a very specialised group of fish adapted for water of negative depth. So that's how that's I did it. But I, yeah, I found I didn't, I found I, you know, even though I could say, you know, three years ago I couldn't even spell paleontologist and now I are one, I, I, I found that <laughs> I, I wasn't cut out for research. I was too much of a butterfly. I just wanted to see what everyone else was doing and yeah. uh, I wanted to play rock music in my band and I wanted to write about what other people were doing. So uh, rather than research, I was playing music and writing the graduate magazine and writing things for the college magazine and this, that and the other. So, um, you know, when I was writing up, my um, thesis advisor um, put a, um, uh, an advert in Nature on my desk, wanted assistant editor. So I applied for that job and I didn't get it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but they had another job just happening. They wanted a writer to write popular science six days a week on the op-ed page of the London Times. 
and I got that job. I'd done no, <laughs> I had no portfolio. They would, it wouldn't happen nowadays. Um, I think the editor, the late, great John Maddox, who was a bit of a contrarian, I think we hit it off and we were stayed good friends. Um, and, uh, you know, until the end of his life, we were, we were good, good friends. But really, it was like being picked for Manchester United after playing a few kick-arounds on the village green, really. Um, and it was the, the most amazing lucky break. So I started there as a, a news reporter and a journalist, writing about every kind of science you can imagine, from AIDS to exploding galaxies, six days a week for the London Times. Um, phew, that was um, a learning yeah. curve. And um, after a bit of that, I wrote a, I wrote a syndicated column in, uh, in the New York Times syndication service that popped up all over the world in odd places. And then I decided I wanted to move to the to the to join the elite band of people who actually chose the papers that we published and um uh none of my colleagues there was remotely interested in bones or paleontology <laughs> so they were, they were only too pleased to have me look at them instead and the rest is prehistory <laughs> um, this is grand i love everything you're saying but okay well i want to ask you some things about this this is a very short history of life on earth it's uh, there are 4.6 billion years of storytelling in this copy well and i'll give you an extra billion for free it's actually another there's actually about 5.6 oh that's right there, so. that's right free, so for a limited time you pay for the 4.6 billion, but I give you an extra billion. Right. For a limited end. time, you will get an extra billion with every copy. Mm -hmm. Here's yeah. another thing. This is, I, I showed this uh, to someone recently. Like, this is how much reference material is in the back. This is not just somebody going, hey, this is some fun stuff you might find on Wikipedia. No, there, is t there are tons of sources in the back. To, you did an immense amount of research for this, uh, but you, it doesn't read that way. It reads like a very slick uh, it feels like you're being told a story by a by a uh, a wizened wizard in a tower saying, "Come closer, I will tell you about how the world um, came to be." Uh, I have to find my wizard's hat somewhere. I might, <laughs> I might have a I might have a fez, but I, I don't. <laughs> fez will work too. Um, not even as it's near Halloween when we're recording. I don't. Uh, don't have a... I mean, I, I uh, uh, this is one of those books that I'm going to gift and I'm going to tell oh, people about. Oh, please do. Yes, uh, thank you. I want people to. Uh, this is a great uh, way to get someone interested in in because you can find your entry point. Uh, I wanted to go to Apes immediately, of course, but I, I, I held out and, and, until we got there in the course of time. Let me ask you a couple of weird questions about this. Um, first of all, uh, just as far as book world goes, what compelled you to write this book in particular? Well, for a while, I, I mean, I've been writing lots of books. Um, I'm always seem to be writing a book. After each book, I say, I'm not going to write another expletive book, I say to my wife, who smiles indulgently because she knows that I'm always going to be writing another one. Mm -hmm. But for a while I've had in the back of my mind, I'd like to write a book about the history of life. Um, um, just a very you know simple book, a kind of autobiography or a biography of the earth. I mean, lots of people have done this sort of thing in a very sciencey way, but I wanted to write more of a narrative. And of course, that's what ended up, but it, it came out as in a very circuitous way. I just put this at the back of my mind, you know, in the kind of slush pile at the back of my mind and um, of 
you know, neglected, antiquated and stupid ideas that one has. And mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. until I um, was at the office, do you remember the days when you used to go to an office? <laughs> remember, I mean, our, our children won't believe us <laughs> when we actually went somewhere else to do work. But I was in the office talking to one of my colleagues whose name is David Adam. Uh, he was then a news writer at Nature and he'd written a couple of psychology books. And if, with your psychology background, you should uh, get in touch with him. I would love to. Uh, yeah, one was called The Man Who Couldn't Stop. And it's all about his personal experience with OCD. Oh, I didn't okay. know he had OCD, um, by David Adam. And then he wrote one called um, The Genius Within, which is all about mind hacks and can you take, you know, supplements to make you do better at exams and all that. Anyway, uh, I said to... He'd been, he was writing and we were talking about what we were working on and I'd just finished a rather terse textbook. Um, it was my contractual obligation book. But, um, and he said, what are you working on? And I said, I'm not going to write another expletive book. And he said, well, why don't you, ignoring me, he said, why don't you write a book talking about all the fabulous, extinct, amazing fossil creatures that you've dealt with in your time at Nature, Henry, that's what he called me, that's my name, Henry, he said, why don't you write about, you know, the Fisherpod, Tiktaalik, uh, uh, Neil Shubin's thing that you published in Nature, and the feathered dinosaurs, and all the amazing hominins, and fossil fish, and, and I thought, that's quite a good idea. So, still protesting, I wasn't going to write the expletive book. I went and wrote the expletive book, although mm -hmm. it wasn't quite the same. It was more of a memoir. It was more of a um, uh, a story, not just about the fossils, but the people who found them and my experiences going to find them and uh, full of in-jokes and so on. And I called it Let's Talk About Rex, a personal <laughs> history a personal history of life on Earth. Uh, so I wrote that and... Uh, I said to my agent, I was writing this, and she said, great, uh, why don't you send me some chapters? And, and I said, well, I'd rather keep it to myself because I'll have to clear it with all the people I'm talking about. So I wrote it and I cleared it with all the people who said it was great. And then I showed it to my parents, which is um, <laughs> ever my sternest critics. Mm -hmm. And they said, well, that's, it's all very nice, dear, but um, who's actually going to read it apart from the people <laughs> mentioned? Um, so I said, hmm, um, but my agent was much more tactful and said, yeah, why don't you just do it as a narrative? Just do it as a narrative, a straight story. And my agent is absolutely fantastic. We've been together since we were young girls back in the last century. And uh, with her help, um, I sculpted it into the book I wanted to write originally after, you know, it's a circuitous route. And it became a very simple story of life on Earth and would just go from the beginning to the end and maybe a bit uh, more after the end about the whole history of life on Earth. So that is a rather long answer to your question, David. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> no, I prefer long answers. Yeah, I like well, that a lot. The thing, about, the thing about me is I tend to just keep going Good. until I, I fall over from exhaustion or physically restrained. Listen, we have you have full... Uh, you have full leeway to do that. Uh, uh, you can go on as pod, pod, podcasts are great like that. Aren't that's they? right. It's the way uh, to go. Yeah. The let me like for people who are like they actually want to know what's in here. Let me ask a couple of those kind of questions. But we can go anywhere you want. Um, the the 
you opened talking about uh, I had I, I hate I hate to admit my ignorance in this regard, but I had never heard of uh, you talk about a star dying. And then the supernova, then that leads to going through a cloud of gas, and that class of the gas co coalesces, and then we have this new star that is born, and all these atoms and molecules that eventually end up in my eyeballs and uh, in my in my soup. Um, but you but you mentioned along the way that we have the Earth is struck by this. I have never. I I I'm very sorry to admit I was very ignorant about this. Is it pronounced Thea? Is the the Thea or Thia? Thia probably. Uh, um, tell yeah, us what I, that I stumbled is. across that when I had to when I had to narrate the audio book. I just went for Thia. Thia, okay. Not, I, I've not heard anyone T H E I A. Yeah, I've not heard anyone say it. Um, no, this is quite a controversial hypothesis, um, and we published it in Nature some time ago. Uh, and the my astronomy colleagues do that. I wish I did the astronomy as well as the paleontology, and then I could say I was the long, long ago and far, far away editor. But, <laughs> but, so, but, but um, sadly not. Um, no, the thing is, the Earth has a moon, and the Earth and the moon are a very strange system. No other planet has a moon that's quite so big in relation to the primary, except perhaps the Pluto, which is rather a different ballgame entirely. And... Um, uh, what um, the Apollo astronauts found when they brought back moon rock was the uh, moon has a very similar composition to the Earth, um, which is unusual because most uh, um, moons in the solar system are, uh, are captured asteroids and come from different places entirely, as far as we know. Um, and um, putting all the evidence together, the idea is that the Earth was struck by one of the early planets, and there were a lot more planets in the early solar system than there are now. Um, but it was a kind of crapshoot. It was a billiard hole in there, and, <laughs> and everything bumped into each other. So this thing, fire, which was a body about the size of Mars, smashed a glancing blow into the Earth and kind of shaved off most of the Earth's crust into space. And uh, fire disintegrated, um, and the stuff that was left after spending some time orbiting the Earth as rings, like Saturn, um, glommed together and became the Moon. And uh, yeah. this is anite. I think a lot of these, a lot of this stuff is still quite controversial. So now I'm going to the macaroni and cheese recipes Let's part go. of the discussion. <laughs> is that um, uh, what I say in the book? I, I talk about. Uh, I, in the actual main body of the book, I talk about it as fact. I talked about it as, you know, this is how it happened. But, of course, in the back, I've got all those notes and references which say, you know, not so fast. This is a hypothesis, and here's the source, and here's where you can read more about it. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to put all that at the back for everyone to um, look at or not if they if they um, chose, um, I would hope they do because I put all the jokes in there. And um, uh, so that's where I put all the sources, where, where you can go and find the, the, the uh, original research if you want to. But yeah, that's quite a new thing. It's a new thing to explain why we ha why the Earth has this moon and why it's so big and why it uh, looks very much like the Earth in terms of being a, a geologic geologically similar. Mm -hmm. So that's... Uh, a fairly new thing. That's fascinating. That's yeah. why you might not have heard about it. I had never heard of it. And um, the the fact that we're tidally locked with it and that there are all mm. these, I love that there are all these mythological constructs of the formation of the universe that think of the moon as being 
birth from the earth or uh, being uh, you know related to us in some way and then to, mm -hmm. to and to come back around and finally have observations that say maybe maybe so which is that's yeah, there's something yeah. very nice about that mm -hmm. uh, to think of it as as our uh, sibling out there or something like that well well it's it's our it's our it's our kind of slightly unfortunate lost twin you know it's um who's come in from the cold as it were and, and hasn't had all our advantages of atmosphere <laughs> and life and that sort of thing and now we take a break from our program for a word from our sponsors. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns. And I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before. And this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a the therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing, measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's, here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just there's too many. You can't get to everything and you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all to make those better decisions. If that's you, 
you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number. 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system. Streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less. Close their books in days, not weeks. And drive down costs. And one. Because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No, you get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business, your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases All these fallacies that I talk about on this program, it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing, absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash not so smart. You get it for free. That's netsuite.com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. And now we return to our program. The you, and you talk about this early earth being in a complete water world, and then you create this beautiful vision of uh, because of the moon it leaves a tsunami in her wake. Mm. Uh, the every day there was a tsunami that circled the planet like a, like an yeah. inter, like an interstellar, the movie. Uh, that, yeah, that yeah. was the early yeah, well, earth. That was the early earth because when the when the earth was very the infant earth was a ball of magma and uh, gases such as water vapor. The earth was big enough to hold the to have the gravity to hold all the water vapor it didn't hold things like hydrogen it was too light so this is why some of the gas giants and some of the big planets are covered in hydrogen because they they were big enough to start with to hold this gas but earth is big it's just the right size it's big enough to hold gases but but uh, not so but not hydrogen but not so small that it loses all its atmosphere pretty much like the moon or, or mercury or mars um which has got hardly any atmosphere um, but then, when the Earth had cooled from being a ball of magma, it rained. It mm. rained and it rained and it rained. And never had Piglet in his life seen so much rain <laughs> for millions and millions and millions of years. And the occasional comet used to come in, splash, and add some more ice and, and, and rain. But then the moon was, uh, Luna was much closer to the Earth. Um, uh, the, the, the moon is slowly spiraling away from mm-hmm. the Earth over, uh, you know, billions of years. Uh, and the the Earth, the day was about I don't know ten hours or something. The Earth span really spun really fast, and the Moon was very close. So I was trying to give that picture of a, a water world uh, with no oxygen in the atmosphere, so it was black. So I say it's it loomed over the black horizon, 
And because the tide, because it was so close, the tides would have been just majestic. Uh, and of course, there was no land. Um, uh, I mean, or very little. Uh, um, although uh, there wasn't Kevin Costner either on this water world. <laughs> The the whole idea of the book is like a history of life on Earth. I want to talk about abiogenesis. Which I, want to, I want to talk about this moment that life became. And I've always been a big fan of talking about it in terms of like these little bits started jiggling next to these little bits in a pattern that could repeat and sustain itself. And so we just call that life. You talk about it in a way that I'd never seen before. I'm over. I'm looking at my notes here. The um, mm-hmm. you're talking about the sieves that they they have porous rocks in this early Earth. And it just so happens that some of this scummy stuff that's that's all these these minerals and, and molecules, they form a film over a rock and where there's a, a hole, a sieve forms. And if you could tell tell me from your perspective how that becomes life. OK, um, of course, you know, if you look at the notes uh, I wrote, I wrote this is as close as apart from the extra bonus billion I give you at the end. Um, this is the close I get to making stuff up. <laughs> so there's um, one of the most mysterious things about life is its origin. How did it start? Uh, and there have been so many ideas about that. Um, uh, so I tried to think about this in terms of various ideas. Um, uh, the, uh, the, the problem with zapping molecules into the sea of, is they'll all disperse. If you have life-giving molecules, before they'll get together, they'll all disperse. They won't mm. have, they, they won't see each other. They won't be concentrated enough to react together. And also, um, you need some kind of, I didn't write it in these terms, you need some kind of catalytic surface to get molecules to react together. So there is an idea that um, life began by molecules um Adhering, adhering to rocks or minerals with catalytic surfaces, which which stuck them to close enough together, long enough for them to react. Mm-hmm. And, and also there are these ideas that the places that uh, life would have originated wouldn't have been near the surface. Um, it would have been down in the deep sea um, where there was a great concentration of useful minerals um, to react with, to oxidize, to reduce, to get energy out of iron and sulfur minerals mainly. Um, and then I thought about these volcanic rocks that come out full of minerals and also full of tiny little pores and holes. And if you have all these um, black smokers, these gushing jets have come out of the earth at 300 degrees, but it's still liquid because it's super pressurized and superheated. When it comes out into the water, of course, it's cold. The minerals will precipitate out. And then there's turbulence. So the water slows down into little eddies and pools and loses its energy and gets dumped. So where is it going to get dumped? It's going to get dumped in all these little holes in the rocks. And so you get in these tiny confined spaces where things can happen because, they, because they're confined and concentrated and aren't dispersing, you get dumped a lot of very reactive minerals together with quite a lot of the early organic molecules that people find in comets and you know even in the deep deep fossil record these organic molecules and they put them together so they play together and then there was another strand that I um, I, I, I put in which is uh, something um, 
uh, espoused by a guy in London called Nick Lane, who's one of the people who's thought the most deeply about the origin of life and the chemistry involved. And he thinks that life can only have come from a particular kind of deep sea hydrothermal vent, because that's the only place where you'd have the right chemistry. And I had to invent these membranes because life is all about membranes. It's all about once you get a membrane, you, you can separate one thing from another thing. And then you can have some kind of uh, little gateway through the membrane that allows some things and through, but not others. Even if the even if the membrane's not very efficient, even if it's just like a sieve, it's better than nothing at all about keeping some things out and um, and concentrating some things in. So, what you get, you start with little scummy soap bubbles, which concentrate particular um, molecules that start reacting with each other they start exporting and importing things through the membrane um and they use that they, they start to produce a chemical battery now one thing that nick lane please interrupt me if i'm going off the tangent one thing, that, one thing that nick lane uh says is, is that the base of basis of the whole life is the proton pump basically pumping hydrogen ions uh through membranes that is basically how life works it's a kind of battery and what um life does is it stores electric charge on one side of the membrane or another and lets it through the membrane to drive chemical reactions mm -hmm. now it lets through just a few protons but when you think of how microscopic these things are the potential difference in terms of voltage it gets up to millivolts it's actually quite a lot of electricity so um what life did was life first, before it actually became living, invented the battery um, and invented ways of manipulating chemical energy across membranes. And once you've done that, you've got the basis of life because it drives chemical reactions that might not, not otherwise be driven. And when you're also next to a catalytic surface like a volcanic, like a volcanic rock full of interesting minerals, you drive chemical reactions that wouldn't happen in the... Um, open ocean particularly making long chain molecules like proteins and uh, nucleic acids um uh which would just be blasted to bits if it was in the open ocean and they weren't in this this nurturing concentrated little nursery um once you put all these things together you get these little membrane bound bubbles with constant concentrates of of um nucleic acids and things in the middle and there you've got the beginnings of life then you can have evolution to start to happen so that's my take on it um and of course it is very speculative and no one will actually know but what i was trying to do with that part was put together all the things that i thought most likely um, to happen and put them in one story so i there's a lots of things i don't talk about i don't talk about the a lot of you'll hear a lot of discussion on the origin of life like the rna world that um rna which is a cousin of dna can also act as a catalyst it can uh, itself so people have thought that rna started as a kind of genetic material and a protein at the same time i didn't want to get anywhere near that i didn't want to start having to do the conventional science book like this is dna mm -hmm. and it has four bases and this mm -hmm. is what we do i just wanted to avoid all that so i just wanted to tell the story and, and, and paint a, a picture of these little bubbles bubbling out um yeah in the deep sea i love that i love the way you write this book uh, the because you don't go you don't 
divert from the storytelling of it. It, it, it. There's a momentum that is kept up all the way through it. Uh, I, I, like This is this part of the book. I'm reading from your book. These simple bubbles found themselves at the very gates of life and that they found a, a way to halt, if temporarily and with great effort, the otherwise inexorable increase in entropy, the net amount of disorder in the universe. Such is an essential property of life. These foamy lathers of soap bubble cells stood as tiny clenched fists defiant against the lifeless world. Mwah! That's fantastic. Wow, thank you. I love it. I love this. I also love this idea in um, I- any way I've seen this constructed and, and told that, you know, this is just, this is no different than a phenomenon like um, a star or a, a, a whirlpool in a river or something. Like, this is just a repeating pattern that's taking place thanks to the fact that there's uh, there's a rock somewhere in the way that you're telling it. There's a mm-hmm. place that allows for some order to be maintained mm-hmm. instead of a, a constant a, a kaleidoscope of chaos in which mm-hmm. things are dispersing and then there's nothing can like become regular. And then mm-hmm. the idea that life is a repeating pattern that gets better at repeating and mm-hmm. in the form of something we would construct, we would, we would categorize as a battery or something. Yeah, and then, yeah. and then from that, the complexities build and build and build until mm-hmm. eventually we're having this ridiculous conversation, right? And and we're talking mm-hmm. about and, and somebody made a movie about uh, people in space, uh, like you know, that's the direct <laughs> result of a rock <laughs> sitting in just the right spot. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, one of the things that amazed me, and uh, actually, just from talking to talking with you now about it, was how these delicate little structures had to form in this unbelievably, in this hellscape of this super hot, super pressurized chemical um, maelstrom mm-hmm. with all these minerals jetting in and out and this high pressure and the high temperatures. And yet it had to have those to forge these tiny, delicate little little soap bubbles. In fact, you, you think that tiny, delicate little soap bubbles would need you know, more delicate refined places to, to form but but no it's in this the most um, horrific energetic place imaginable yeah um so it's kind of a, a contrast there. which lends credit to the this the panspermia concepts that like you know this who knows where this where a little bit of of repeated order and regularity could pop up uh, on a mm-hmm. co- on a comet or an asteroid or some bizarre thing well floating out you know there. Uh, i wouldn't um uh, not the idea of panspermia, except that there's no evidence for it. But I don't think there's um, any reason why it couldn't happen. Um, uh, there's a guy I know uh, at NASA Ames called Rocco Mancinelli. He's married to Lynn Rothschild, who studies these amazing bacteria from Yellowstone and places like that, hot springs. But Rocco, he um, he puts bacteria on the outsides of spacecraft and then you know, sees, sees if they can survive in space. And, you know, uh, and uh, there was a spacecraft called the Long Duration Exposure Facility, which was a spacecraft with all sorts of things painted on the outside because people wanted to find what happened to them after being exposed to the space, all the, the vacuum and the radiation. And he had various cultures of bacteria and he retrieved some of them. And, of course, they, they all looked very sick. They didn't <laughs> like it at all. They, they were not happy bacteria but some of them could grow and reproduce after being exposed to space but could be uh, back to 
Bacteria can be entombed in grains of salt for a billion years. Isn't that uh, no a quarter of a, no a quarter of a billion years? But hey, who's counting? I mean, you know, so, uh, yeah. Let's not let's um, not get into numbers. Um, <laughs> so you know, this is this is what caused the great fuss when they had that Martian meteorite, which people thought at the time had fossils in. Of course, that's now highly doubtful. But mm-hmm. um, but there's nothing wrong with the idea uh, because there are bits of Mars that were blasted off the surface of Mars that now are on the Earth. There mm-hmm. is a small group of meteorites that are bits of old Martian surface, and uh, this is one of them. I mean, you know, it's the fire idea all over again, that back in the early solar system, uh, planets used to bump into each other all the time because mm-hmm. uh, there was lots more of them and they were smaller and they were, they were jostling around to make space. So, you know, things hit things hit the surface of Mars and the bits fly into space and they come and hit the Earth. I mean, it was the same. And things keep happening like this. I mean, the I didn't know until quite recently, and I just recently enough that I put it in the book, that the meteorite that brought the end of the dinosaurs had been a hundred million years in the making. It, it originated a hundred million years earlier from a particular collision in the outer solar system. Uh, and was been circling, circling around, waiting to strike. Oh, so, cool. so, so you know, like like all overnight sensations, it took a long time to 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 to, to gestate. The uh, I have my the notes that I took while I was reading, and uh-huh. uh, first of all, you were totally right. The people who advised you to to that you would be great. Uh, this would be a great book for you because you uh, for all the different creatures that you love to talk about and things like. Um, uh, uh, Archeons, which I love, uh, Rodini- yeah, yeah, Rod- Rodinia, Claudi- yeah. Claudina, which Cla- I- Cla- Cloud- yeah, Cloudina, Claudina, Claudina. Yeah. I love yeah. Claudina. Uh, yeah. The, um, but then, uh, and I'm only skipping fa- ahead because I know we're running out of time. But I would, uh, you talk about trilobites and all the other amazing things that were going starting around 635 million years ago, um, and we go through the Cambrian explosion, which is deeply uh, horrific to me because it's mostly spiders, crabs, and and, spin- and spindly insect things. That, Lots of uh, nasty, long, pointy teeth. Skittery, skittery, gross uh, things that I don't want to think think about. They they dominated our our planet, and then you, you but you get to a part where you talk about the development of the anus. Uh, and, oh yeah, and you say that the, this was the development of the anus was a revolution in the biosphere, which is a wonderful oh, sentence. Was. And, uh, and I'm going to, uh, uh, pass this back to you, but it's a, de- a wonderful development in the, in, in the evolution of life on this earth, the development of the anus that is because oh, yeah. it allowed for poop to co- be coagulate and form into little blocks that, and these turds sank, which led to yeah. a wonderful thing, which, which also led to this conversation eventually. Could you talk mm-hmm. about that for a minute, please? Well, what's happened is um, uh, very simple animals like jellyfish. Uh, I mean, basically, most creatures um, that are most creatures are microscopic, and but what what creatures have to do is get food and gases and the things it needs through its little membrane, and get rid of its waste products also through its membrane. And for most things smaller than a tiny dot. This is fine. You don't need anything special to do that. But anything bigger than that, it's much more efficient to have a particular place 
in your membrane to do things. So what simple polyps and jellyfish and some very simple tiny worms did was they basically had an infolding of the membrane. So they became like a bag. And so they had an inside and an outside and the bag, that the entrance to this bag, the mouth of the bag, was where things came in and things came out again. So it was a mouth and an anus. And at that time, uh, food was just very tiny particles and bacteria and waste products were basically gases, uh, dissolved gases, carbon dioxide, ammonia, and just a thin slurry of stuff. It's just a, a thin wash of stuff. But then some uh, tiny worms um, uh, evolved a separate opening so that the gut had a direction. Things came in at the front and went out at the back. And this became much more efficient because once an animal has that, it can make the gut all sorts of very windy and long and, uh, and, wound, and wound up and still not make its size any bigger. And so it can, can digest everything more efficiently and reduce the waste to a solid block of poo. Now, when this, at the time, the ocean had almost no oxygen in it. And oxygen, all animals needed to breathe. But because it was so little oxygen, only very tiny animals and sponges could breathe it because any more anything more active needs more oxygen to grow and breathe and the the reason there was no oxygen was because all this all the pre-poo poo this slurry of waste was just was spread throughout the ocean and digested by decay bacteria throughout the ocean and these decay bacteria consumed the oxygen so there was no oxygen but when animals invented poo the poo went straight to the bottom and that was followed by the decay bacteria in what I call a race to the bottom. Mm -hmm. So all this poo goes to the bottom, all the decay bacteria go to the bottom. So all this oxygen-using decay bacteria stuff happens at the bottom, which means the oxygen was free to accumulate throughout the rest of the water column. And that, that allowed for the evolution of larger creatures. Um, and it was also to do with the evolution of the anus. The bottom hole, which we disparage in in all our jokes, <laughs> but will, it, it had the last one. Has to show it some respect, man. It was um, <laughs> a major step in evolution. We we are we should be thankful for the anus. I mean, this is we, how we we, this was the portal to uh, to sentience. The anus well, was the gateway to life itself. And, and, and I and I think this is a one reason why people sometimes have their best ideas while sitting on the job. There's actually a link. <laughs> between the anus and sentience. It is, it is a great way to free up oxygen. I, uh, uh, and I just love the idea. I, I love this so much. I, that was, I, I, this shows how juvenile I am, but I was, this is my favorite part of the book. I was like, oh my God, like turds led to the riches of civilization because yep, they, because they right. sank to the bottom and, yeah, <laughs> and freed yeah. up oxygen so that creatures may evolve. Mm -hmm. Um, it's beautiful work, and I love the way you wrote it. And you wrote it in a way where you didn't just as a meta commentary on the writing. You just uh, you just say that and keep going. Like you don't yeah. you don't point at this and go, "Ha ha, look how clever I am." You just say, "This is how it works," and now we will proceed to the next part of of your epiphany. I, I think that <laughs> I think that's so beautiful. Um, the last thing I want to talk about is, is I'm sure people who, who are going to pick this book up they want to think about how people come about or how mammals at least come about. And again, you, 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 you talk about this in a way that was not uh, what I expected. Uh, we talk about the evolution of the jaw. And yeah. um, you talk about these fish struts, 
that um, that eventually lead to uh, the ability to hear things. Uh, if you could talk about that at any length you like, uh, I find this deeply fascinating. Well, you know, uh, back in the Devonian period, when we were fish, consult Neil Shubin's Your Inner Fish mm -hmm. for details. Um, uh, the fish, uh, our skull originally had two layers. There was the, there was the, the, the bit that enclosed the brain, the, 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 the casket that enclosed the brain. But there was also another layer outside, the kind of facial, facial skeleton that went over the, you know, what's now the neck and enclosed the gills. Um, and there were bones to stop your, the brain box knocking into the kind of helmet on the outside. And uh, key to that was a pair of little struts that basically held the brain box away from the helmet uh, on one side, these kind of supporting struts. But they just happened to sit next to the bit on the brain box where the sound came in, mm. where, where the inner ear is. Now, the inner ear wasn't originally for hearing. It was for helping with balance so the fish would know which way it was going. It wasn't really much to do with hearing at all, but mm. it did convey some sound in a kind of grum basso grumble. Um, but then what happened was the fish, um, some of the fish found themselves on land and um, uh, uh, what the uh, little strut was doing was it was connecting the little a hole in the brain box where the sound gets in to the bit in the helmet where there was a gill slit. Now, where the animals, when the animals came to land, the gill slit was roofed over with a thin membrane, and that became the eardrum. Mm. So what you have in these early amphibians, which we should really think of as fish with legs, mm -hmm. you had an eardrum on the outside uh, in a notch, in the, it was the eardrum, with a little bone that goes to this uh, hole that goes to the inner ear. So... What we have is this little kingdom ruled over by this strut, this little realm between the eardrum and the inner ear. And that became the middle ear. So as well as doing its supporting role, this thing found itself, this little bone, found itself in just the right place to conduct sound from the vibrating eardrum to the, to the brain. Now, that is still how amphibians, reptiles and birds hear to this day. This little bone um, uh, became the stapes, the stirrup bone, the mm -hmm. smallest bone in the human body. But, you know, it was quite a great big chunk in some of these early animals. Um, so it wasn't very good at vibrating. Um, but in birds and reptiles, it's quite a thin wisp of a strut. Mm. So it's good for the vibrations. But then what happened with the tiny mammals? The ancestry of mammals, mammals started off as these mammal-like reptiles, which were great big uh, creatures but as the time wore on and this was before just before the dinosaurs happened um the ancestors of mammals became smaller and smaller and furrier and furrier and tended to be more and more nocturnal and um as they became smaller this affected the way their anatomy was um put together now we'll just go from the ear to the jaw now another quirk of evolution is that this bit where the eardrum happens to be, happens to be right next to the hinge for the jaw. And the reason for this goes all the way back to the way gills were made back in the mists of time. Now, in reptiles, 
dinosaurs and birds and uh, the earliest mammals. The jaw was made up of lots of little bones. Um, but as the mammals get smaller and smaller, the jaw changed shape so that all the little bones at the back of the jaw got shoved out. Some were absorbed by the bone that holds all the teeth, which is the only bone we have left. That's the lower jaw bone. It's only one bone. Mm -hmm. And some of these tiny bones at the back got shoved out and found themselves part of the middle ear. So the stapes was joined by two others, the malleus and the incus, the anvil, the, mount, the anvil, the hammer and the stapes, these sort of rather blacksmith-like romantic ideas. Mm -hmm. So what happened was these jawbones got shoved in, so the eardrum first connects to the hammer, then it connects to the anvil, and then that connects to the stapes and then to the eardrum. So the, it made a chain of three tiny bones. In fact, some early mammals actually had five, but, you know, this... Uh, but in the one that comes down to us is these three tiny bones. And this was absolutely revolutionary because it allowed these tiny mammals to hear sounds that were much higher pitched and much louder than reptiles or birds mm -hmm. can. Because these little, um, this chain of bones made an amplifier and uh, uh, concentrated the sound and also allowed to, and because they were very small, allowed to conduct high pitched sound. Now, all of a sudden, this for mammals opened up an entirely new universe of sensation. It was as if they'd been scrubbing around in some dark forest, unable to, to find their way at all. And then they went through a hole in the hedge and found this enormous vista hmm. of, of, of discovery that was completely new and open to them. Uh, and so, you know, most birds can't hear sounds more than eight to ten kilohertz mm -hmm. now that, uh, to, to give some perspective um small children can hear up to 20 kilohertz but people like me who grew up listening to deep purple we can't <laughs> quite hear as high as that so um but many mammals you know dolphins 100 kilohertz bats 160 kilohertz mm -hmm. dogs cats 45 kilohertz this is why dog whistles, you know, you can't hear them, um, but the dog can. Yeah. Now, it was because of this little middle ear that, that opened up this universe of sensation to the mammals. Um, and that was one of their key features that allowed them, while the dinosaurs were busily stomping around and bumping into each other during the day, the mammals were rulers of the night mm -hmm. for 160 million years. Um, and it was partly because of the ear which because of all these chance happenings that the jawbone just happened to be close to this gill slit that just happened to be roofed over to become the eardrum, mm -hmm. that all went back to the way the gills were laid out mm -hmm. and this little strut that held one part of the head clear from the other. Um, so, I, I mean, it would have been fun to do this with pictures, but I didn't have pictures and I deliberately didn't have pictures. I wanted to tell that as clearly as I could and I wanted to give it some life to it. Um, and you did. It's 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 a yeah, great thank you. it's a great part of the book. That's why it's it's, it's struck me so much. Uh, I, I think it's just a marvelous story. I love story this story. I, I, I agree because I love I love when you know evolution is is a process and and, and mm. it's haphazard and it does what mm. it, it is what it is. The the, mm. the this happens to be here. This happens to be here. This mm. uh, if it's useful to the animal, then it's more likely to survive. And then mm. boom, 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 boom. We have all these things. But it feels it feels marvelous that we have this ear. 
uh, that can do this, all these amazing things. But the way it happened is just a hodgepodge of, of mm-hmm. bizarre. This happened to be here. I was over here. I got on land. Now I'm going to get tiny and these things are getting crunched together. Also, I want to lament that, uh, that this wonderful vista that was opened over the course of millions of years of hard fought evolution was uh, closed off permanently by Deep Purple. I think we should uh, have a moment here. <laughs> to, to, um, to well, you know, I, I suppose um, I'm 59, and uh, you can, you, we, your listeners happily can't see this, but I'm losing my teeth. But um, uh, human beings are really only supposed to live until they're 40, mm. and then it, and then they fall to pieces. Mm. Uh, that's that's uh, that's the way it made us. But hey, I've had fun. You know? <laughs> I'm looking forward to this the the, the last lap up, as I suppose. <laughs> the the, the we're, we're we're out of time, but I, uh, I I want to encourage people to get this book because you go from here to talking about uh, you know. Now we're doing so well as uh, as mammals that we have these big heads. But big heads mean you got to care for your young, so that means you got to make some milk. And you end up with monotremes and marsupials and placental animals, and then they all go off doing their thing. Uh, and then seven million years ago, you start you get into how apes decide they want to walk around on two legs, which is odd because dinosaurs did that with a big counterweighted tail. But uh, we have a vertical spinal column that is having to be much like the ear built on top of a system that's made for horizontal uh, backbones. And then, so we end up with this, the ability to do the tango because we have this, as you call us, the fighter jet body, which is, um, can you imagine dancing with the stars with velociraptors? I mean, the, it's the little hands that get in the way, the little arms, yeah, yeah, the, little, the little arms. It's, yeah. it's very just, difficult. And that long tail, they bash each other. Uh, but I do love this fighter jet analogy you use, which is like we're nimble, but we're uh, unstable. And, mm-hmm. so, and so it's, it's, which leads to these, you know, to Fred Astaire, but it also makes it yeah. very difficult to learn how to walk. Um, so you got to take care of kids, which leads to whole problems. Uh, and we've got these giant heads and we need, then we discover meat at 3.5 million years ago. And then it really takes off. It's an incredible book. I love this kind of uh, book. I love the the writing style. Uh, also, you are, uh, and I know that um, you're too uh, self deprecating to accept this as a compliment, but you're a delight and a uh, a, a incredible figure in the world of science communication. And you've well, done, you've done a lot. Thank of you, sir. One endeavors to give satisfaction, sir. And, and and you you are a titan of of science communication who's done who's opened doors to many other people, and I really appreciate all the work you've done in that regard. And I wish you immense success with this. I will push this on everyone, uh, and I will promote it heavily. And, oh yeah, um, thank you, David. Thank you, David. You're a gentleman and a scholar, and you know where I live. <laughs> thank you. That is it for this episode of the You're Not So Smart podcast. You can find Henry G at End of the Pier. That's his handle on Twitter, at symbol End of the Pier. That's where he tweets. Uh, and you can find everything that we talked about on this episode at YouAreNotSoSmart.com. You can find all the past episodes on Stitcher, SoundCloud, and iTunes, and Omni, and Spotify, or at YouAreNotSoSmart.com. You can follow me on Twitter at David McRaney. You can follow the show at NotSmartBlog. Also on Facebook, it's slash YouAreNotSoSmart. And if you'd like to support this one-person operation, help make it better, help pay for transcription and other services and features, go to Patreon.com slash YouAreNotSoSmart. Pitching in at any amount will get you this show ad-free. 
the higher amounts, you get posters and t-shirts and signed books and other stuff. That's right, there are t-shirts you can purchase for Christmas. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace, and this music is by Banjo Apocalypse. And if you truly want to support the show, just tell everyone you know about it, tweet about it, talk about it, share links, and check back in about two weeks for a fresh new episode. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.